Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and as always, I'm really happy to have all of you with us uh, today. You know, um, we're going to spend uh, today's show talking with uh, one of our favorites, uh, Greg Bluestein, who, of course, is a panelist on Political Rewind every Wednesday. You read him in the AJC certainly every day. Uh, his bylines rarely are not featured on the front page of the newspaper. I, there are very few days that go by when you don't see his byline on the front page. And, and I, I thought about something uh, when, when I thought about how Greg approaches his work. Um, you know, Hubert Humphrey, uh, the former vice president, uh, ran for president. Um, he was known as the happy warrior. And, and it was because he took such joy in being involved in the political arena, in doing his work in politics and policy. And that's Bluestein. I have really known few reporters who are as joyful about covering uh, this uh, 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 discipline, the political uh, world, the way Greg Bluestein uh, does. And, and Greg, that's what makes it so much fun to always have you on this show. Uh, so welcome to Political Rewind. We're going to spend some time talking about your brand new book, Flipped, How Georgia Turned Purple and Broke the Monopoly on Republican Power. But we've also got some political headlines that are pretty interesting today. How are you doing, Greg? I'm great. It is a little strange being here on a Thursday and not a Wednesday, but it's a yeah. great yeah. day. It's opening day for the Braves. So I'll be there tonight with some friends and my youngest daughter and, of course, heading into the campaign trail right after this. So um, how could it not be a great day? Yeah. Uh, opening. You know, I was thinking about that, too. I know you're a big Braves fan and you've been taking your daughters uh, pretty regularly to games. But this is also a huge day in Augusta. I mean, my goodness, Tiger Wood, after coming back from a catastrophic auto accident, which he almost lost one of his legs, is going to play in the opening round of the Masters today. You know, that's that's a remarkable story, Greg. It really is. I had the chance to go last year for the first time uh, in my life to go to Masters, and it really was. I'm not a huge golf guy, but it was it was such a unique experience being there, and today's got to be uh, just electric there. Well, yeah, I think you just said an important thing. I'm not much of a golf fan either, but that's why golf loves having Tiger Wood back in yeah. the game because he's the guy who gets us all interested to at least some extent in golf. I'll certainly be watching how his uh, journey this, this year unfolds, and I'm sure you will too. Exactly. The personal narrative, the story, the comeback kid again, what, for the third time? It's, uh, it's yeah. really incredible. All right, let's talk about um, your book. But I want to start by talking about your book, which covers the 2020 election in great detail and tells us some stories that most of us did not know, behind-the-scenes stories. Um, but I want to start by talking about the process for you. Um, it, it, it really is different to write on deadline, 
to uh, churn out stories the way you do, how the quick way in which you sometimes have to get a story now, especially posted online um, uh, at all hours of the day and night and writing a book. How was that transition for you? And a completely different animal, right? Um, I'm used to writing by the minute, right? Writing on deadline for breaking news stories and morning blogs and the newsletter and, you know, all the different things we do. And, and even, you know, even the front page news type stories, you know, there are hard and fast deadlines that you've got to hit every single day. Right now I've got two or three in the back of my mind <laughs> for, for upcoming stories that, that I'm, I'm due to write. Um, you know, and then you transition that to the book process where your deadline isn't, you know, day or a week or, or even a month. It's in months. You know, when I signed this contract, it was kind of like, okay, we're expecting the manuscript in the fall. Good luck. And I said, now I've got nine months to do this. <laughs> you have to kind of stay disciplined just to stay on track or something like that. And, 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 and when it came time to sit down at the computer and face the blank screen, uh, and recognize you were writing long form, uh, a, a story that would unfold over hundreds of pages. Was that challenging? You know, it wasn't, it wasn't, because um, I started writing the, the book proposal for this in November, or now nah, December 2020, so right in the middle of the runoffs. And my goal was to have the book proposal before publishers, um, before the January 5th runoff. So I at nights and weekends in December after covering things on the campaign trail, because it certainly wasn't quiet at all in the middle of the, the runoffs, um, I put together a 90-page book proposal with no ending because we didn't know how the runoffs would end. And I just knew that, the, that, that I felt like that was the best time to get, get a captive publisher audience interested. Um, and, of course, you know, no one could have expected January 6th to unfold the way it did. Um, but I had my interviews with the publishers afterwards, and um, – uh, you know, and of all the offers, every single one of them that came in said, we love the book proposal, just stick to that. So I already had this great framework of how to write. So I already had, I, on a, like, basically a 90-page, you know, of that usable, maybe 20 pages. But I, but I had at least the structure. I had the bones of the story that from then on I could just kind of flesh out. So that was when you started the sort of interview process. You know, it's fascinating about that. Um, you already thought the book was going to be worth doing after Biden won Georgia for the first time. The Democrat had won the state since 1992 when Clinton did. But then on top of it, you didn't know that Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue would go down in flames. And we'd also have two Democratic senators. So suddenly that book really became much more appealing, I would think, to publishers and much more exciting for you to work on. Yeah, I mean, had no idea, right? And, and as we were talking on the radio on air in, in the run-up to those runoff elections, people would ask us, hey, what do you think? What's going to happen? We just, we didn't know. You know, it, it could have gone right. either way. It, it was so, Georgia is the most politically divided state in the nation. Um, and certainly the fact that, you know, the, the Democrats ended up winning this upset, uh, this upset battle made it an even more interesting story. Um, but I think if the Republicans had won too, it would have been a story very much worth telling. Uh, of how despite you know, the misinformation, despite the effort to overturn the election, despite Donald Trump's help and harm that he put on the candidates, uh, the Republicans still you know, had this shot of winning. I want to talk a little bit more about process, if you don't mind. So here's, yeah. here's what I mean by that. Um, back in my uh, uh, college uh, days, 
Um, while a lot of people who were studying English took uh, rhetoric, I had already started working in, in journalism as a, as a high school student, as a college student, and, and I preferred the idea of uh, studying uh, journalism. And the reason I did was it, it seemed to me that once you have mastered the ability to write a hard news lead that, you know, one paragraph, often one sentence summary of a story, who, what, when, where, uh, why, and then some people add the how, uh, you have learned something about writing that serves you well no matter what you're writing. You really master a skill, yes? Yes. Uh, the, the art of distilling a two-hour speech, you know, a giant event, <laughs> a major political decision, a bill signing, a debate, whatever it is, down to just a few hundred words um, on deadline, you know, with, 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 with really tight print deadlines and online deadlines and all sorts of competition. Um, it, it prepares you like, like pretty much no other, uh, no other yeah. challenge can to, to be a writer. Um, I had, here's another, uh, for me, revelation. When I went from print to broadcast, um, I went from writing those news leads, which got all the important or presumably would try to get the most important information into that lead. Uh, TV news writing is entirely different. Um, typically in writing for TV news, what you want to do is start with the best pictures, the best video you have available and craft a story around that. And I found it very difficult to make that transition at first. Um, so you haven't really had to experience that kind of uh, issue in your career. Yeah, although when I worked for the Associated Press, we had to write for broadcast as well. So it was very active uh, verb. Um, sometimes the lead Sometimes the lead in a print story is the is the end of the TV story, right? Because you're 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 giving a narrative more. Where print stories often you're just saying, "Hey, here's what happened," and the rest, you know, the rest explains more of what happened. Um, but you know, and then you then you go from that to to writing a book, which is entirely different because a line that might be you know one line in a newspaper story might be three pages of theme in a in a book, um, setting up the exposition. Uh, the the backstory of all these characters, going deeper into who they are, what drove them, their motivations, um, the people we think we know because we hear about them, we see them on TV every day, we, we're, me and you are talking about them all the time, um, going into their histories, um, you know, why they ran for office in the first place, what is motivating them, their, their, their ultimate ambitions, because the unique thing about this book is that every main character um, from, from the 2020 election is still right in the thick of things, right? Um, we could, I could never have guessed when I, when I pitched this book around last year that David Perdue would now be a candidate for, for governor against Brian Kemp. They were allies. They were not only allies, they were, they were close allies. Um, Kelly Leffler, uh, Stacey Abrams, of course, um, Brian Kemp, John Ossoff, Raphael Warnock, they're all in the middle of yet another <laughs> premier election battle in Georgia. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's talk about uh, just what you said, uh, uh, how you uh, wrote the story, uh, thinking about how major players in the uh, whole election cycle uh, went through uh, the campaigns. And, and you open the book in uh, in Atlanta at the Intercontinental, Intercontinental Hotel in Buckhead, where the state Republicans are celebrating what they expect to be another victory for Donald Trump in the state. But you focus initially on two people. One, uh, Brandon Phillips, who had been a Republican strategist who had uh, 
worked uh, for uh, uh, Trump in the, I think, it, it, at some point during the cycle. And then Cody mm-hmm. Hall, who um, is now having transitioned from the governor's communications staff, he's now com- the communications director over at the, the Kemp campaign. And you get us into their heads a little bit. Um, you say that those two, while the rest of the Republicans in the room were starting to really celebrate, they both thought, wait a minute, the way returns are coming in, uh, we may not be have a victory here at all tonight. And, and you quote, especially Cody Hall, as uh, saying, they don't even know why they shouldn't be celebrating yet. Uh, that was an interesting way to start the book, I thought. Yeah, you know, and I guess we are used to this, right? Um, you, know, you see returns come in and you know that they don't tell the whole story because what's more important than and sometimes what's more important than the returns coming in is what's still outstanding. And so I'm so used to going to these political parties, Democrats and Republicans, and there's a lot of young folks and supporters and volunteers and donors who might not be, you know, interest, intimately involved in the campaign operations themselves because those staffers you usually hold up in some room uh, nervously watching the returns come in. And at that moment, you know, there's cheering in uh, just about the national uh, outcome, but also about the state outcome because Donald Trump was ahead. But you looked a little closer, you saw, hey, you know, Metro Atlanta, there's still hundreds of thousands of ballots outstanding, and Trump was ahead in Georgia, but not by much. Uh, and, and, and ditto for David Perdue and, and other Republican contenders on the ballot. And so the same thing that was happening in that hotel room was happening to David Perdue at that very moment up in his suite, um, uh, you know, in that same hotel where he was getting calls from people saying, congratulations, you did it, you won. And one of the senior aides burst in the room and says, you know better than that. <laughs> Don't celebrate yet. Uh, this is not going to be that kind of night for you. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. Um, I mean, he came so very close to winning that general election without uh, having to uh, uh, face off uh, in a runoff. Um, I'm trying to remember at what point they realized uh, it was not that night that they realized for sure that that Purdue was going to end up uh, without a 50 percent plus one margin. It took a couple days until that really sunk in. But it was even that night where David Purdue was supposed to address that that crowd. Mm -hmm. Kelly Leffler had a different party somewhere else. Purdue was supposed to come down and uh, to to that first floor giant ballroom or Nate ballroom and give either a victory speech or like a pep talk um, to, to his supporters. And around 1230-ish, I think it was, shortly after midnight, um, I'm still there. I'm actually doing like a TV hit on CNBC because they were so interested in the election results. And I, and I get the call or, uh, from, from one of his top aides saying, the senator will not be coming downstairs. Uh, he's, he's, he's packing in for the night. At that point, I realized, okay, uh, they, they also see at least – the, the beginnings of the writing on the wall. We still weren't sure if John Ossoff would, would keep David Perdue under 50%, but we knew it was headed that direction. Um, you talk about getting the phone call uh, from someone in the campaign, giving you that information. Um, one of the things that, that I think it's important to point out in terms of your work, and there are other reporters who have similar patterns, but, but I think you've become the go-to guy. Um, People always accuse us of being liberals and, uh, you know, uh, working against conservative candidates. 
But you kept a very open line of communication and continue to to this day uh, to people who uh, might think you're uh, you're you're would be a biased reporter because journalists are all liberals. In fact, we should point out that at the last Trump rally, one of the can I think it was Vernon Jones on stage called out a nickname you said you hadn't heard since you were in, like, what, grade school? What did Vernon Jones okay. call you that night? I'm allowed to say it on there, right? Uh, it was kindergarten. Yeah, sure you are. It was Greg Butstein, <laughs> and um, now my kids have, have gotten a kick out of that, and they have used it as a badge of honor, <laughs> for better or for worse. Um, but look, I mean, you're exactly right. Our job is to tell the side, both stories, um, all the stories, uh, Republican and Democrat. So go into the motivations and the personalities and the quirks and the characteristics of the Republican candidates just as much as the Democratic candidates. So this, this book tells the story of David Perdue, and Brian Kemp, and Donald Trump's campaign in Georgia, um, and Kelly Leffler and Doug Collins and all these, you know, all these people who are still on the news. It tells their stories. And look, I've, I've gotten the chance. Um, I've been in this business for more than two decades now. I, I covered... I've covered Brian Kemp since I was in college at UGA, mm-hmm. um, covering his state Senate campaign in 2002 for the Red and Black. Um, I've covered Stacey Abrams for more than a dozen years since she was a backbench lawmaker who hardly anyone had heard of in the Georgia legislature. Um, I've covered John Ossoff since he called me in January 2017 out of the blue. I had no idea who he was. and said, I'm running for Congress, and I've got Hank Johnson and John Lewis's endorsements. Uh, and I've covered David Perdue since he was uh, you know, kind of a nobody candidate with a famous last name who um, I wouldn't have been able to pick out at a, at a GOP forum. Um, so, so, you know, that's, that's a sort of backstory for, for, for how we develop these relationships. But, you know, even to this day, yes, I mean, on a given day, I'm talking to 30, 40 people a day. My last phone call last night was, not, no joke, 1230 in the morning uh, about a jolt item. And my first one was six, 15 maybe this morning about another jolt item. So it, it just, and Republicans and Democrats, it just never stops. It, that's why it's so, okay, so, so much well, fun sometimes. I, that's exactly right. Um, uh, I'm going to ask you about the jolt items in a minute, but so I have a similar experience. You, you are right. If, if you're going to do this job well, you are out there, you're talking to people, as you say, for years. I moved to Georgia in the fall of 1983. And uh, the first political leader, uh, well, he wasn't a leader in those days, the first guy to call me up and to say, I want to come visit with you, was Newt Gingrich, who back then, of course, was, uh, I mean, he'd already started being a troublemaker uh, in, the, in the U.S. House, but he certainly wasn't a standout star. And Gingrich would pay me these occasional visits over the years, off the record, behind the scenes, telling me about what his ambitions were. And so I was able to establish a relationship with him very, very early on. And when he flew to Washington to uh, accept the speaker's gavel, um, I was the one reporter they invited on the plane uh, that they had chartered to go up and celebrate the event. Now, after uh, after some of uh, after some of the really critical coverage of Gingrich, accurate but c- critical. Uh, he stopped talking to me completely. <laughs> but those are the kind of, I, in 1988, spent time in Little Rock watching Bill Clinton because there was this expectation that he was going to maybe announce for president that year, which he didn't do. But when he did in 92, I'd been there 
uh, watching him for years, so we already had a relationship. And those are the things you're talking about as well. Yeah, and just because uh, Newt Gingrich uh, was had a rapport with you until he ended it didn't mean you weren't going to be tough on him, right? Um, and, and that's our job. Um, I learned that lesson really, really early. We wrote a scathing, scathing series of stories about Nathan Deal when he was governor and, and his um, ethics allegations and ethics potential ethics violations um, that were, you know, national news. And one of the things that I always try to do after you write those stories and just in general is show up, right? Um, uh, you know, don't act like you're hiding behind a keyboard and you're some faceless entity covering, covering these things and then disappearing after you write some, some negative story. You show up um, and you let the governor or the speaker or whoever's mad at you that day vent. And, you know, sometimes they might have some sort of justification, right? Um, mm-hmm. And you try to, you know, you try to, discuss it with them. You try to say, Hey, I understand where you're coming from. This is why we wrote the story this way. Um, you know, sometimes as a reporter, it's, it is sort of out of your hands. It's an editor call. Sometimes it's, it's entirely in your hands. Um, you defend your decisions no matter what, but also if you make a mistake, you own up to it and you fix it. Um, and that's something I've always tried to do. And, and even during this book process, I felt a little guilty because of course I double checked and fact checked everything. But after the book came out, I was doing so much stuff that I couldn't get down to the Capitol. It was just, you know, on, on what I jokingly call as the propaganda tour. And so I felt bad that I was missing, you know, Purdue's events and Kemp's events and Stacey Abrams' events here and there and couldn't show my face. And I would text them or text their advisors and say, hey, I'm not trying to avoid you. And I just, in, in case he has an issue, in case so-and-so is upset about, about chapter or whatever, um, you know, let them know that they can, they can vent to me about it or tell me what they do or don't like about the story. And then, look, that's our job as a reporter. We're out there on the front front row, but we're also out there on the front lines in many ways. Yeah. All right. Um, I mean, your book. I, we, there's no way, of course, to to somehow do justice to talking about the sweep of your book. Um, it, it's just a for for people who really want to get a comprehensive look at how the 2020 election unfolded and some of the behind the scenes characters. And it, it, the book is, is just leave it at this. It's wonderful. But I want to pick up on some aspects of the book, frankly, that where I didn't quite understand um, things that you uh, tell me about. So here's number one. I knew that Marty Kemp, Brian Kemp's uh, wife, uh, came from a long political lineage. What I didn't know was what you tell us in this book and that is that she was has been essentially his closest advisor on politics. I was I was not aware of that. And uh, you talk about it in terms of how he decides to make the choice for the the Johnny Isaacson seat to uh, f- to have someone step in an appointment until the uh, uh, election. Talk about Marty Kemp and her influence on her husband. Yeah, Marty Kemp might be the most politically active. Georgia first lady in modern state history. And, you know, the governor and her are at pretty much every event together, big bill signings, major decisions, and it's not just for show. I mean, Marty Kemp plays a very active role in front of the cameras, but also behind the scenes. And the family is very proud of the fact that, you know, his three daughters play a key role too. I mean, decisions are made as a family, and not just big decisions like, hey, should I run for this office or not? Because, of course, those involve um, everyone in the family. Um, but also, you know, where to go on policies, what ads to run, 
are you comfortable, you know, the Jake ad, of course, which got so much national attention with the governor pointing a shotgun towards one of his daughters, you know, an actor playing one of his daughter's boyfriends. Um, that got, had to get signed off by the family, of course, because it involved, you know, the, the daughters. Um, but also huge decisions like Kelly Leffel. And, um, you know, there was this intense vetting process where the governor and his aides realized they wanted a few things off the bat. Um, they wanted someone who'd look different than the rest of the Republican slate. So basically someone who wasn't a white man. Um, they wanted someone who would support Trump, but also who could be a very solid running mate for, for Governor Kemp in 2022, because, of course, they were factoring in a victory in 2020 and the fact that whoever won had to turn around and run again for a full six-year term. Um, they wanted someone who would be an outsider. Um, and they wanted someone who would just gel with, with Brian Kemp. And so the governor liked Kelly Leffler. His aides vetted her, tried to warn her, and all you know, tried to prepare her for the onslaught that was coming by talking to her about all the, uh, you know, all the travails and, and, the, and the challenges ahead. Um, but one of the biggest tests was Marty Kemp. And when they went to the governor's mansion together, and Kelly Leffler sat down with with Marty Kemp, and she Kelly Leffler wisely brought photos, had photos at the ready of her at 4-H clubs and her showing, um, I, I think it was showing cattle at a at a farm. Uh, at, a far, at an agriculture show, that immediately uh, it, it motivated and energized and, and, and attracted um, uh, Marty Kemp, who you know comes from that same background, who loves going to to, to agriculture shows with her kids and 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 raising, uh, you know, basically had a farm growing up and still and still raises a lot of animals on, on their properties, and so that was one of the ways that they immediately hit it off. Yeah, um, I, I I was really uh, particularly interested in in reading about about her big big role in in her husband's uh, work. Here's another story I thought very poignant story that I knew very little about, but you tell it in some depth. Um, Raphael Warnock left the campaign campaign trail at one point to go be uh, at his brother's release from prison. I knew very little about that story, and you tell it to us uh, in the book. Um, describe it just a bit for us. Yeah, and that was intentional. Um, it was not something that the Warnock, <clears throat> that Senator Warnock or his campaign wanted people to know. I only found out about it because a friend of mine was on a, a Zoom call that was already scheduled with him, and for, for whatever reason, you know, he wasn't in the stately office or at his campaign headquarters or anything like that. He was in a car <laughs> coming back from that, in that state prison. And, and so I kind of tucked it away. I think I wrote a story about it for the AJC, but then I tucked it away for, for future. Huh, let's, let's dig deeper into that. And um, it's the sort of anecdote that the senator wasn't comfortable putting in the middle of his campaign. He wasn't comfortable talking about it really much on the campaign trail, filming ads about it. But to him, you know, that was one of his, his, his brothers who was being released from prison on a, on, after serving time for drug charges, um, that goes to the heart of how he feels about criminal justice reform and, and how he feels that it's disproportionately burdening African-American uh, Georgians and how it needs a, a, a remake. And it hasn't, still hasn't been anything like the center of his campaign. If, if there's one major issue that you identify him with um, over his first year, it was probably voting rights, not, not criminal justice mm -hmm. overhaul. But it's something that's near and dear to him and something he has personal experience with. And by the way, Stacey Abrams does as well with a brother who's also served time um, for drug-related charges. Um, 
All right, let's do this. I've got to get to a break. I do want to pull out a couple of other stories from the book that I think are really fascinating. Um, And we'll do that in just a minute. And then we got to address some of the big news that I think uh, it uh, is uh, happening right now in Georgia politics. We'll do that after a break. Here is here you are today on Political Rewind. We're talking to Greg Bluestein, who, of course, has been um, one of the longest standing members of the Political Rewind panel going back a very long time. You're used to hearing Greg on the show every Wednesday. He's joining us today, um, which is terrific. Kevin Riley, uh, Greg's boss, the editor, uh, who's usually here today, couldn't be with us. Um, So, Greg, I'm delighted that you are here for the show today. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about your new book, Flipped, How Georgia Turned Purple and Broke the Monopoly on Republican Power. Um, And and again, I've sort of been picking bits and pieces here and there that I found particularly interesting. Uh, Because I have not been out there uh, covering politics in the way that I did when I was uh, over at WSB-TV, there are certain players who I never got to know. And one of them you write about, and I think it's it's worthwhile talking about him for a minute, is T.J. Copeland. Um, T.J. Copeland, Democratic operative, who struggled for a long time to get National Democrats interested in competing here in Georgia, right? Yeah, and it's sort of a story of Democrats overall, is that they felt like, hey, that they were being overlooked by national party activists, that, that they know that either there's a couple things that were always kind of going on behind the scenes. One was that national Democrats thought that Georgia just wasn't going to be that competitive, that it wasn't a safe bet, that it wasn't uh, nearly as, as competitive as maybe Florida or North Carolina or Arizona or, of course, those upper Midwest states that got so much attention. Um, you know, and, and even with billion, a billion dollars to spend, there are all, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of ads. Um, it still is, there's still a limited pot of money to go around, and you can't just start spending money everywhere you want. Um, and, and, and of course, these campaigns are getting pressure from all states, right? Even not competitive ones, saying, hey, if you just give a little bit more time and attention, who knows what will happen? Uh, well, in Georgia, um, folks from TJ Copeland all the way up to Stacey Abrams were incessantly making that argument, saying that Georgia was a safe bet. Georgia only had one major metro Atlanta, sorry, one major media market that was relatively cheap when compared to others. That Georgia um, was already close. The trend lines were already going towards Democratic favor, um, and that just a little bit extra nudge would help. And of course, they're making the argument that hey, uh, demographics isn't destiny. It sure helps, <laughs> but but just because the state is getting younger and getting more diverse uh, doesn't mean that those voters will instinctively vote for Democrats. Some of them will stay home. Some of them, you know, might not vote at all. Uh, so, so might not might vote for Republicans, I should say. Um, and they need a message. They need a reason to go vote. And that's what Democrats tried to give them. And that's why they were so insistent on Joe Biden paying attention uh, to Georgia. And when he came down to the state a week before Election Day and had that that famous speech at Warm Spring, the 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 home of, of FDR, the second home of FDR, the little White House. That was the biggest indication you could get that 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 uh, Joe Biden was taking Georgia seriously. It was an enormous breakthrough for Georgia Democrats, and it was certainly Stacey Abrams who paved the way for that to happen. And I think it's important the way your book um, uh, uh, portrays that. It was Stacey Abrams 
who basically said to Democrats when she ran for governor the first time, hey, your old way of trying to attract Democratic voters, to attract voters, period, is simply no longer uh, valid. Uh, Yellow dog Democrats no longer exist in this state. And we saw that play out in the Stacey Abrams, Stacey Evans primary battle, where Stacey Evans uh, stuck to the uh, to the older formulas for how to attract uh, voters and had the support of some of those old line Democrats like a Buddy Darden and a Roy Barnes, um, whereas Stacey Abrams said, it's time for us to stop pretending that we don't believe in progressive politics. We can do better attracting voters with new messaging. Exactly. There was this forum in 2017, I think it was, in um, at Carter Center. I'll never forget because a lot of it was devoted to not just policy, but, but strategy. And that's where uh, both of them kind of staked out their strategy in very stark terms, where Stacey Abrams said, hey, we can't, we can't win spending all of our time and resources and devoting so much energy towards trying to convert, you know, former Democratic who in the suburbs who now are Republicans. Um, there, there are hundreds of thousands of Democratic voters who are on the sidelines who feel disconnected and, and alienated from the political process that we need to motivate. And this is not a knock on Stacey Evans. Her campaign was saying we can get those voters, but we, we need to focus on um, college-educated white middle-class uh, voters in the suburbs who used to be solidly Democratic, who, have, who are now worried about the Donald Trump era, right? Um, and so they had starkly different views. And, you know, in a sense, you, know, you look back to 2014 at Democratic contenders back then who were running statewide, who ran as NRA Democrats, who stayed away from Barack Obama and other national figures. That wasn't looked at as, as this, you know, far out sort of approach back then. That was the conventional wisdom. You know, if, if Jason Carter, who's running for governor, and Michelle Nunn, who's running for U.S. Senate, if they had greeted Barack Obama at the tarmac when he came into town in October, right before the 2014 election, people like me and you, you know, would have made a huge deal about this. Oh, they're tying themselves to unpopular national figures weeks before the election. Um, so now it's easy to look back and, and sort of be critical of that. But back then, that was the conventional wisdom. It was looked at as, hey, you can't win if you do stuff like that. So, um, again, you, you really point out that it was Abrams who paved the way, uh, really, with urging by other Georgia Democratic leaders to get Joe Biden down here to actually compete uh, uh, and to put money into the state. And that turned Georgia blue. Um, we'll see what happens in this mid-year mid election. And, and before I get to another break, I want to talk about two other aspects of this book. Um, one, I may be wrong about this, and you'll correct me if I am, but I don't think there's any other figure in the book who you, uh, whose inner thoughts you uh, suggest you can capture uh, in the way you do David Perdue. You have an interesting kind of stream of conscious uh, 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 way of working with Purdue's inner thoughts, one of which is Purdue didn't understand why Republicans were so excited about him back when he first ran for U.S. Senate, right? Yeah, I mean, David Purdue, and, he, and the beauty of it is he's open about this. He, he's open about how much he doesn't like traditional campaigning, or at least didn't like it back then. Um, he was not a happy warrior. <laughs> you were talking about me being a happy warrior. He wasn't. He was very open about it. He yeah. said, I don't want to be doing this. I don't like it. Um, he didn't like the rubber chicken dinners and going to the Red Lobster and trying to 
in, in, in Rome, Georgia, and trying to curry favor with the local poobahs. And at some point, he kind of stopped doing that, that sort of avenue of campaigning and, and looked at different things he could do to, to try to energize supporters. But he always found it very strange that, you know, now, you know, or in, at least in 2020, he was this very popular incumbent among Republicans, basically a Republican rock star. There'd be long lines of people taking selfies with him. But his mind would always flicker back to 2013 when he was this nobody in politics and he was running for this office. And, you know, the only people you could find with David Purdue stickers were people he paid to wear them, you know, and, he, and that of course was a reminder to him that how fleeting politics is. And, and, and by the way, we can, we can channel that to right now because, you know, he's not Republican rock star he used to be. I'm not saying he doesn't have a chance to be governor Kemp because who knows what will happen in about, you know, two months, but, um, he is not the same character he was in the minds of many Republicans just two years ago. And it shows you how quickly fortunes can, can sort of upend today. But we should point out he's running a different campaign than he ran in his last one. He's out there uh, talking to voters. He's talking to reporters. What a miracle. <laughs> he seems to have adjusted to the fact that if you're going to win election, you have got to get in the game completely. Yeah, he's running as an underdog, um, and he didn't run as the underdog in 2020. I mean, it was he, he was out there, but it was very hard for us to figure out exactly where he was out. His campaign um, steered clear of Metro Atlanta um, for large chunks and wasn't exactly forthcoming about details of where he'd be or when he'd be there, um, leaving it to local activists. I had to rely on a lot of local activists, like, hey, he's going to be in you know, Monroe on, on Tuesday at 6, 6.45, so I'd, I'd make it out there. Um, but, you know, now he's running as this challenger and he's out there, you know, willing to do debates and th things like that that he wasn't nearly as willing to do in, in 2020. And that's a big part of the book, too, by the way, which is his, his decision not to participate in that runoff debate against John Ossoff. And I quote Derek Dickey, maybe his closest political ally, his sort of uh, the, the David Perdue whisperer, the person who could translate David Perdue and really get him going and, and engage with him, um, saying, you know, by then he wasn't with the campaign, but saying how disappointed he was that David Perdue um, didn't take that step and didn't do a showdown with, with John Ossoff and how it was just not the David Perdue he, he remembered from the 2014 campaign. Yeah. Um, all right, let's do this. Let's get to our final break of the show. And speaking of David Perdue, we have a brand new poll uh, of the governor's race that I really want to get your thoughts about, Greg Boustein. We'll do that and talk about a couple other stories in the news when we return. Continuing now with AJC political reporter and author of Flipped, Greg Bluestein. Greg, um, we have a brand new poll of the Georgia governor's race. Uh, I'm particularly interested in it because it's an Emerson college poll. They did it in uh, uh, cooperation with The Hill. Uh, and I, I'm interested because my daughter is a graduate of Emerson College, although she wisely decided to be an acting major, not to go into the political side of Emerson's, uh, uh, Emerson College. But anyhow, so the Emerson poll uh, confirms something we've seen in any number of polls, and that is that right now, Brian Kemp has a pretty big lead, 11 points, 43 to 32% over David Perdue. And this poll comes even after Trump was down here reinforcing uh, his support 
for uh, David Perdue. Talk about what you thought when you looked at the data. That's why this poll is so important, because it's the first public poll we've seen since Donald Trump's rally in commerce just a few weeks ago. And why it's important is because for the longest time, um, David Perdue saying, hey, his campaign is saying, hey, as we get more attention, as we remind voters, as we, we let voters know that Donald Trump backs his campaign, that his numbers will start to rise. Because um, there was early polls that showed 40 percent, 30, 40 percent of Republican voters didn't know about Donald Trump's backing. It's hard to make that case now, right? There's still some folks who might not know that, but at this point, not only does he have his own ads documenting that, but there's been so much coverage of from people like me and you, but also um, of the just event coverage of that rally and and you know word of mouth spreads, and so now we know that even with um, the that information seeping in, it hasn't really moved David Perdue's numbers that much at all. He's still back double digits. Most polls have shown him behind. Brian Kemp, 10, 11 points. David Perdue will be quick to point out that, hey, Brian Kemp's in the 40s in this poll. So that's not a, that's not a place an incumbent normally wants to be when he's facing a stiff primary challenger is, is not above that 50% mark. Um, but David Perdue is in the 30s. And um, Brian Kemp has some very major structural advantages working in his favor. A, he's got a ton of money. Um, he's got a lot more, he's got multiple times more money than, than uh, David Perdue has in the bank. David Perdue had less than a million bucks. Um, uh, Brian Kemp has amassed a huge war chest. B, he's got outside allies coming in. I mean, the RGA has reserved $5 million worth of ads between now and Republican May Governors Association. Republican Governors Association um, has reserved more than five times as much worth of ads that David Perdue has in his, in his campaign account. And I think maybe to me, the biggest part of this is, is the bill signing period that we're in the middle of right now, or the startup right now. For the next 30 so days, the governor is going to be traveling around the state signing a number of measures, some aimed at a broader audience like teacher pay raises and, and um, public uh, raises for public employees and things like that, tax refunds, and some are aimed at a purely conservative audience um, like a gun expansion, like this legislation that we've all been talking so much about involving transgender students. Um, and that will give them a drove of free media attention. It will be really hard for David Perdue to overcome. You know, I, I can understand why the Purdue campaign is looking for the pop, most positive scenario they can uh, in this polling. And it is certainly true that Kemp is well under 50 percent, 43 percent. He's in the low 40s. Um, but it, 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 I think we have to ask ourselves, is that a function of the fact that people just really aren't engaged quite yet in this election, um, rather than they're already deciding that they're not certain about whether Brian Kemp is the guy that they want to see in office for four more years. Yeah, there's still some undecided voters. And again, that, in a sense, plays into Kemp's favor, because who has the money yeah. to, to reach those undecided voters right now? It's not David Perdue, unless, unless there's a late infusion of cash from Donald Trump or from David Perdue's own, own wealth, because he's got He's reported uh, he's got more than fifty million dollars in his in his coffers, so it's not like he uh, in his personal finances, I should say. So he could self fund his own campaign, um, but we haven't seen that to a large degree yet, and we'll start to see. I mean, I, I always viewed this period as crucial. This week or so after the Donald Trump rally, as crucial to see if the numbers started to budge. So far, they're not. Now we're heading into you know the home stretch. Early voting starts in less than a month. The election, of course, the primary is May 24th. 
there's not much time for David Perdue to catch up. And and also, one of the things that is kind of a behind-the-scenes story that, that we watch closely is um, reserving ad time on TV stations around the state. There is only so much inventory available for political ads on TV stations. And if you've got the kind of money Brian Kemp does, you can book times all the way up until the primary itself. You can take up a lot of that inventory. Uh, David Perdue hasn't had the money to be able to make the same kind of bookings which is going to put him at a significant disadvantage, I think, when it comes to getting the message out on uh, TV, especially motivating his voters to turn out to the polls. So that's a significant uh, problem for Purdue. And Greg, to add to that, um, you've now had Trump twice seem to hedge his bets on Purdue and say, well, maybe he can't get across the finish line, but don't blame me. Yeah, and the Washington Post had an interview with him, uh, with, with, with Donald Trump, that published this morning, where it also mentioned Trump was continuing to, to be nervous about the outcome of this. Because, look, you know, we've said it a lot, but um, I feel like Georgia is the biggest test of Donald Trump's influence, not just in 2022, but possibly in 2024, because not just because of the number of candidates he's endorsed, he's now endorsed eight, because he added Marjorie Taylor Greene to the list last night. But it's because of who he's endorsed, uh, other than Marjorie Taylor Greene and perhaps Herschel Walker. Um, these aren't easy bets for him. You know, these aren't people who are assured to win. David Perdue is facing an incumbent governor. Some of these down-ticket um, candidates he's he's endorsed are very un- virtual unknowns in Georgia politics, going against incumbents who who have been running for years now. Um, so this is this is not a safe bet for for Donald Trump in any way. And you're right. He started to say, well, you know, this is tough, it's really tough to win. Um, you know, the governor Kemp has a lot of institutional you know, advantages like fundraising. So he's trying to sort of um, hedge, back downplay, backpedal, however you want to frame it. And that can't be a good sign for David Perdue, because what does David Perdue want? He wants Donald Trump to come back to Georgia, for sure, in May. Mm-hmm. And he also wants, you know, I'm sure he'd love if Donald Trump dipped into his his $100 million-plus super PAC, and devoted some of that money towards ads in this final stretch. So you raise a really interesting question. If Trump is starting to hedge his bets on Purdue, if he's starting to watch the polling, if he's starting to look at the fundraising, um, it is how much of a commitment might he want to make to another visit uh, uh, to Georgia? Yeah, one of the radio interviews he did, he talked about a virtual rally, you know, which which commits yeah. himself to something without coming up here. Look, even at the rally in commerce, there was this kind of throwaway line that he issued at the end that I picked up on, which was, hey, this David Perdue, you better be governor. You better make it, make this, all this, you know, I've spent a hell of a lot of time here. You better make it worth it. Um, so, because it is, it's a whole production, right, to, to go up there. And a lot, of, a lot of staff is involved. And, of course, the, the former president's own time is involved. Um so it's not necessarily easy getting him just to commit to another rally. And, and look, you know, we've seen it. We've seen it in other states. I'm not suggesting it will happen here, but we've seen Donald Trump rescind his endorsement of Mo Brooks in Alabama. We've also mm-hmm. seen him sort mm-hmm. of back off and say, criticize candidates he's endorsing. They didn't run the strategy I wanted them to run. It'll be hard for him to do that here because David Perdue has not only tied himself uh, to, to Donald Trump, but he's even gotten even further you know, in, in embracing Donald Trump's falsehoods. 
Yes, but but that's another another reason I wonder about Trump wanting to come back here. Uh, does he want to, you know, really continue uh, to put his reputation on the line in Georgia if it really looks like Purdue is is uh, struggling? I want to talk to you about Herschel Walker in that Emerson uh, poll. Uh, he continues to be the leader by a very wide margin, according to uh, uh, Emerson and The Hill. Fifty seven percent of Republicans, over a thousand people polled. Um, uh, Gary Black is coming in second at like 13%. And you point out in an article today that uh, because of numbers like those, Herschel Walker is, as you put it, on cruise control. Yeah, and I don't think his campaign would disagree because they even retweeted that article. Um, and, I, you know, that's been his strategy. He's ignored his rivals. Um, his Even his spokespeople have hardly said anything about his rivals at all. And that is usually an indication to me that, hey, if he's once he starts talking about Gary Black or Latham Sadler or Kelvin King, that's a sign that he's worried. He's not. He hasn't been a, below 50 percent in any major public poll recently at all. He's even been as high as 70. One poll even had him at 80. Um, uh, I quote a conservative commentator, Martha Zoller, a friend of, of the show, saying, um, you know, that it, why bother? You know, he's got nowhere to go but down if he does try to engage. Of course, we, well, we in the media, we want to see him do debates. We want him to participate in the Atlanta Press Company debate. We want that public discourse. But his campaign strategy is, hey, <laughs> why bother if he's so ahead and he's already focusing almost entirely on Raphael Warnock? Um, we're almost out of time, So, but very, very quickly, uh, Vernon Jones got a ringing endorsement from Newt Gingrich uh, uh, recently. And it lasted for, what, a couple hours uh, before Gingrich said, whoops, I really didn't, I meant to endorse, um, who did he end up endorsing? <laughs> Mike Collins. That, that yeah. that this is, we're talking about the, go ahead. The 10th District, yeah, that ringing endorsement was quickly unrung. It shows you some of the behind the scenes. New Gingrich had endorsed Mike Collins about a year ago, I mean months ago. Um, and for whatever reason, there was a lapse. And he, he says mistakenly endorsed Vernon Jones. Uh, he even posted a video for Vernon Jones, but at this point now he has gone back to his endorsement of Mike Collins and said that he is not supporting Vernon's candidacy. Vernon Jones being another guy that uh, Donald Trump has essentially uh, endorsed in the 10th District race. We're completely out of time for today's show. With Bluestein, I know we could talk for another hour and not run out of things to say. Um, Greg, it was such a pleasure to have you here uh, alone to talk with you. Flipped is a wonderful book. And I really encourage people uh, to read it out there. Um, I, I said, I, Greg and I did an event together a couple weeks ago. And introducing him, I said that Greg Bluestein's favorite punctuation mark is the exclamation point. And it truly is. It's how he lives his life. When I send out a note about the next day's show, I always get a message back saying, can't wait, exclamation point. And that's one of the reasons, aside from your knowledge, that we love having you as part of our show. Greg, thanks for being here today. We're back again tomorrow with another live show. And I look forward to having you all with us. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Please stay healthy. Bye, everybody.